Well, there are as many as 400 ancient prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. And so for centuries before the Messiah actually came to the earth as a man, the Jews were not only watching and waiting for him to come, but they were also diligently learning and teaching one another those same scriptures that described him and how he would come. And yet when he finally did show up, the vast majority of them missed it completely. They didn't recognize the very person they'd fashioned their entire lives and culture to reflect. And despite the profound and undeniable impact that Jesus has had on the earth since then, it remains true that the majority of the Jewish community and truly humanity in general continues to overlook the person and ministry of Jesus as the Messiah. And so for the religious Jews at least, they're still waiting for the Messiah to come 2,000 years after Jesus' arrival on the earth. The 12th century rabbi Maimonides, one of the most prolific and influential Torah scholars of the Middle Ages, wrote in the Mishnah Torah concerning the Messiah. He said, anyone who does not believe in him or who does not wait for his arrival has not merely denied the other prophets, but has also denied the Torah and Moses, our rabbi. That was written nearly 1,200 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and so we're still waiting for him to come. The same people who were supposed to know more about him than anyone, the same people whose lives and community and culture were fashioned around a messianic expectation for God's chosen, the same people failed to recognize him when he was standing right in front of them. Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John 5, 39 40. At a cursory glance, it, it's really hard to fathom how the balance of God's chosen people, the ones who claim to belong to him, could fail to recognize who Jesus actually was and what he was doing on the earth while he was right there among them. And yet before we get too judgmental about God's people then, I think it is not only fair but necessary that we ask ourselves, if Jesus were to walk into our churches, would the balance of his people today recognize him? Because I can tell you this, he doesn't fit in with popular culture. He never has. In fact, from day one, Jesus has defied people's expectations of him. And nowhere is that more evident than in the last week of his life on earth, including Palm Sunday, which of course uh, we're celebrating today, the week before Resurrection Sunday, where it, just in that one week, Jesus systematically shattered the expectations of everyone around him for both Jews and Gentiles. Right, the Jews expected a king in the line and tradition of David to come in on a war horse. What they got instead was a man in peasant's clothing accompanied by common people riding on a young donkey of peace. They expected validation as God's chosen people. What they got instead was driven out of the temple by Jesus for their sin. They expected religious pretentiousness, even arrogance. What they got instead was a man willing to give himself up for the very people who were mocking him and beating him and cursing him and ultimately killing him. For the Jews, Jesus was one shattered expectation after another. And to the Gentiles, listen, the cross was foolishness. 
In Acts 17, we find the Apostle Paul in Athens teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. But as we see there, it was foolishness to them because the Gentiles believed in human reason above everything else. As George Renault puts it, reason tells you that babies aren't born to virgin girls. Reason tells you that God doesn't become flesh. Reason tells you that Almighty God will not allow puny men to nail him to a cross. Reason tells you that when a man dies, he cannot be resurrected back to life again. None of that makes any sense for the Gentiles. The cross was foolishness. You see, Jesus simply did not meet anyone's expectations. And in the process, most of the people who encountered him failed to recognize who he was because he was completely counter to the culture and the expectations of the culture, even the religious culture. And the truth is, not much has changed in that regard. I know professing believers who relish the opportunity to beat people over the head with theological arguments when others disagree with them, which is exactly what the Pharisees love to do. At the same time, there are a lot of professing Christians today who believe that a moral truth or justification, even biblical truth, is relative to a culture or to a society which is exactly what the pagan Gentile philosophers believed. And then along came Jesus, and he ruined it for everybody because he didn't meet anyone's expectations. The truth is, every one of us today, every one of us has expectations concerning Jesus. We all do, which is why it is so very important for us to honestly assess what those expectations are actually based upon. Are your expectations of Jesus Christ based on popular sentiment about him in our culture or religious traditions you grew up with or even our own preferences about what we want God to be like? Or are those expectations of Jesus based on how he actually lived his life and what he actually taught people when he was here? Because often, honestly, when you... Uh, when you peel back the layers of expectations that we all have about Jesus, you will often find that so much of what we hold to be true about him is actually based on things we've been told our entire lives about him by others, some things that may or may not be entirely true. Or, or on religious traditions that may or may not have their roots in Scripture. Or on popular culture that constantly wants to tell us how we should think about God. But listen... Jesus isn't just some kind of sage who came to spread a philosophy to affirm our positive feelings about ourselves. He also isn't just a religious leader who came to give us a better religion to follow either. Jesus is a king who came to establish his kingdom. And he did it in the most unexpected way possible, which is what Palm Sunday is all about, this revelation of an unexpected king to his people. And so today, as we recognize this profound day in the life of Christ, let's allow some of our expectations about him maybe to be challenged in light of what he actually did and what he actually taught about himself, which, listen, may not only change how we see Jesus but it may well change how we see ourselves also. So we're going to be reading this morning from the Gospel according to John, chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll have it on the screens as well. And we're going to begin with verses 12 through 15 in chapter 12, which is the moment Jesus makes his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem just before the Passover feast. So John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. 
The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So devout Jews were gathering in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, actually some Gentiles as well. Verse 12 describes it as a large crowd, which scholars actually estimate to have been over two million people. So just try to picture that in your mind for a moment, which I think honestly can be hard for us to do because in uh, the sort of cinematic renderings that we have of this event, Jesus comes riding in surrounded by dozens of people lining the road. And I think that's how we tend to see it in our minds. But that doesn't even come close to what this scene was actually like. The sheer immensity of the crowd gathered to hail the entrance of the one they were expecting to lead a revolt against the Roman oppressors. It must have been a staggering sight to behold. They were cutting palm branches from the trees and throwing them on the road before him and waving them in the air because palm branches symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory in their culture. In fact, uh, images of palm branches were stamped on the temple coins dating all the way back from the time of the Maccabees during the seven-year revolt from 167 B.C. to 160 B.C. when a Jew named Judas Maccabeus miraculously led Israel into victory over the Syrian occupation. And upon their great victory, the crowd celebrated by pulling these palm branches off of the trees and waving them in the air in mass signifying their military triumph over their enemies. That should help us understand the mindset and the expectations of these two million Jews toward Jesus as he's riding into the city that day while they once again wave palm branches in the air, which is also why it's called Palm Sunday. And in anticipation of Jesus leading a military revolt against the Roman occupation, They were also shouting a couple of verses from Psalm 118. It's one of the Psalms of Ascents as they threw the palm branches down before him and again waved them in the air. As we know from uh, Luke 19 that shortly after this, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because of his great love for the people, which was driving him to do what would otherwise be unthinkable. He was about to give up his own life for these people. And so the Jews are expecting Jesus to ride into the city before millions of people chanting his name, declaring him king over Israel on the best-looking, perfectly fit, and most intimidating war horse that could be found, the only animal truly befitting a, a, a victorious king. And yet Jesus rides in on a donkey, the exact opposite of what they expected. But why? Why in the world? given the opportunity before him to impress that many people. These are the people that he loves, the people he's so passionate about. Why would he choose to ride into the city on a donkey? Well, it's because Jesus wasn't coming to fulfill their expectations. He was coming to fulfill his destiny as a humble and compassionate Savior. They expected their king to be proud, even arrogant, but Jesus was a humble king. Everything that he did, he did with a humble heart. In fact, his entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey was prophesied 500 years earlier in Zechariah 9.9, which specifically describes the coming of the humble king on the back of a donkey. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, the heart of Christ, by the way, the same heart that is supposed to be in his people today, is always clothed in humility. There's no room for ego. There's no room for pride. There's no room for self-centeredness or arrogance. When the, uh, when the Apostle Paul says, we destroy, he's talking about the church, he's talking about us, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. When the Apostle Peter says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, 1 Peter 3.15. When Jude, the brother of Jesus, says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 1.3. All of these men are talking about winning hearts, not just winning arguments. In fact, if you go back and read each one of these scriptures in their larger context, they all talk about some form of showing humility or gentleness, respect or mercy in the process. By the way, true humility is not simply acting a certain way uh, around other people. According to scripture, humility is actually the state of your heart. The word translated as humility throughout the New Testament in the original Greek literally means a deep sense of one's own moral littleness. All right? A deep sense of one's own moral littleness. That's not simply acting humble or saying the right things or even doing the right things. It's far more than that. True humility is a deep sense of one's own littleness. And this is supposed to be one of the hallmarks of the church, something that Christians are supposed to be famous for, our humility, always putting others before ourselves, always showing mercy, knowing that not one of us, not one of us deserves the mercy that has been extended to us by God, always letting go of our offenses, always laying down our pride, always admitting when we're wrong, always asking for forgiveness when we've hurt someone else, always forgiving others when they've hurt us, always, always, always being soberly aware of our own littleness in light of the greatness of the one who lives inside of us. Right? If we have the Spirit of Christ living inside of us, then humility should be part and parcel of our very identity as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. Humility, our own sense of littleness, should be at the very core of who we are, which happens to be incompatible with the message of our culture. But listen, Jesus didn't fit in with the culture either. They wanted him to be proud, even arrogant, but he didn't give them what they wanted. You understand, Jesus didn't give people what they wanted. He gave them what they needed. And likewise, Jesus didn't send us out into the world to give people what they want. He sent us into the world to give people what they need. This world needs the truth. They need the truth and they need it bathed in humility. Scottish evangelist Oswald Chambers wrote, Never water down the word of God, but preach it in its undiluted sternness. There must be unflinching faithfulness to the word of God, but when you come to personal dealings with others, remember who you are. 
You are not some special being created in heaven, but a sinner saved by grace. The world needs truth, undiluted, but they need it bathed in humility. Because look, you can speak absolute truth to lost people, but if that message is spoken out of pride and arrogance, the only thing they will see in that message is you. Because pride points people back to yourself. Humility points people to Christ. Let's just be honest for a second. When you see Christians arguing on social media or in person for that matter, and they're being particularly arrogant or prideful, no matter how true or even powerful their arguments may be, if there is an overwhelming air of arrogance and pride in their delivery, be honest, you're not thinking about Jesus when you read or hear those comments. No, you're thinking about the person who's making those comments because pride always points people back to ourselves. Humility points people to Jesus. By the way, the humility that is described in the Bible, that, that deep sense of littleness, that's not a, de- a devaluing of yourself, not at all. It's not a, a beating yourself down, no. It is an ever-present awareness of who Christ is in you and what he did for you, which should result in a profound sense of worth and value, and yet at the same time a profound understanding that without him we are nothing. Pastor and theologian Timothy Keller says it this way, The Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Let's keep reading, verses 16 through 19. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So uh, interestingly, verse 16 says that not even Jesus' closest friends, the ones who'd been with him, All of this time, not even those friends understood what he was doing or what was happening. These were the the men and women who knew him better than anyone else. The people who had been with him for years, watching him live out the gospel every day, listening to him teach about who he was and what he'd come to do, and yet they still didn't understand what was happening, even though their own scriptures clearly described what he was doing, and in the exact detail in which he was doing it 500 years before it ever happened. There's no way uh, about it. There's no two ways about it. Jesus was a misunderstood king because he defied everyone's expectations of himself, even those who knew him the best, right? Uh, What kind of king secures the victory over his enemy by allowing himself to be killed? Right? Logically, that doesn't make any sense, but Jesus didn't come to satisfy the world. He came to satisfy the Father. 
And look, if your greatest desire in this life is to satisfy Jesus Christ above all other desires, then there will absolutely be times in your life when other people, including your closest friends and even at times family, will not understand why you're doing what you're doing or saying what you're saying or helping who you're helping or going where you're going or giving what you're giving. Because following Jesus Christ often looks like the opposite of what we think it should. And so as we pursue his leading with true humility, other people will at times, listen, they'll question your choices. They will question your judgment. They will question your motivation. They will question your decisions, your actions, your wisdom, and your direction that you're taking. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've experienced what I'm talking about firsthand. And for those of you who haven't, you can go ahead and write this down and post it on your refrigerator for future reference when you get home. If you are truly following Jesus Christ, there will absolutely be times in your life when you will be deeply misunderstood by others, even those who are closest to you. Just listen to what Jesus says to those who came to him, telling him they wanted to follow him. This is his response. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What? What does that even mean? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. <laughs> Bear his own cross. That means die a horrible death. What are you talking about? For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be. My disciple. Luke 14, 26 through 33. In other words, you say you want to follow me, but you'd better well count the cost before you make that decision because following me is going to cost you every single thing that you have. Jesus, why are you saying that? Don't you want people to follow you? I'm supposed to hate my father and mother. By the way, the word hate in verse 26 was an ancient Semitic expression. It means to love less. So he was saying, look, you have to love me more than anything or anyone else in your life, including and especially yourself, if you're going to follow me. That's why you have to bear your own cross. Allow your will to die so that my will can be accomplished in your life. Honestly, are these the kinds of things the king says when he's trying to recruit an army? Look, Jesus was misunderstood. And you will be too when you follow him. Because you're no longer trying to satisfy the world when you're following Jesus. You're only trying to satisfy him. 
And that will lead you to places, that will lead you to people, that will lead you to decisions and actions that the people around you do not understand, sometimes even those who are closest to you. So listen, if, if pleasing people is one of the aspects of your own life that drives you or motivates you to do the things you do. I'm not talking about simply wanting to be kind or helpful. I'm talking about people who can never say no. I'm talking about being a people pleaser by nature. If you often do things to make people happy, even at the detriment of doing what is best, because by the way, those two things aren't always the same. If you're a people pleaser by nature, and just to be clear, I am talking about myself here, so don't feel bad if you fall into that category because I'm right here with you. But look, the hard truth is, if that's a part of your personality and motivation in life as it is in mine, then you are going to struggle at times in your life with actually pleasing God. Because sometimes doing or saying what is pleasing to God means doing or saying what is anything but pleasing to people. Sometimes what feels right and what is right are two very different things. Sometimes truly loving people means doing and saying things that are not pleasing to them at all. Author Bob Goff said, loving people the way that Jesus did means living a life of being constantly misunderstood. Let's keep reading, verses 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus just continues to torpedo people's expectations of him as two men come looking for him, wanting to see him, and yet he doesn't even seem to acknowledge their desire for a meeting. He doesn't give them what they want to hear. He gives them what they need to hear. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And as they were about to find out, Jesus didn't just speak this truth. He lived it as he gave all that he had, his very life, for the will of the Father. Jesus was a sacrificial king. There's simply no getting around this aspect of truly following Christ. Now, of course... Uh, that doesn't keep us from trying, does it? Because no one enjoys sacrifice. Let's be real. Forfeiting what you want for the sake of what God wants is never easy, and yet you simply cannot follow Jesus Christ without experiencing life-altering sacrifice. Did you hear me? You cannot follow Christ without experiencing life-altering sacrifice. Because following Christ always means dying to ourselves. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He really didn't leave any room there for debate, did he? Not a lot of room for alternate interpretations or lengthy discussions about what he may have meant. He simply said, if you're not willing to sacrifice your life for mine, then don't bother because you can't follow me. You cannot be my disciple. That was so 
incredibly unexpected and yet so incredibly clear that people either dropped everything and everyone in their path that stood between them and Jesus and followed him or they turned around and walked the other way. Really, in the first century, there was no in-between. There was no benefit back then to sort of uh, following Jesus. Once he made it clear, the personal cost involved in following him, you were either all in or you were all out. Okay, Jesus didn't try to, listen, Jesus never tried to coax people into following him. You know that? He never told people what he thought they wanted to hear in the hopes they might decide to follow him. No, when these Gentiles came to see Jesus, he didn't even bother to meet with them. He just said to his disciples, go tell them what it's going to cost for them to follow me. He knew what was in their hearts. You go tell them what it's going to cost to follow me, namely everything. Jesus never told people what he thought they wanted to hear to try and convince them to follow him. And look, in the modern church, we've become experts at trying to package the message and craft our church culture in a way that is the least offensive and the most attractive in the hopes of coaxing people into our churches and into the kingdom of God. But that's not what Jesus called us to do. He called us to sacrifice our lives to utterly disown what we want for the sake of what he wants. And listen, ultimately, that is what will truly attract people long-term to our churches and to the kingdom of God. When the world sees the church living and giving selflessly, sacrificing our lives of comfort and security and predictability and instead pursuing Christ with radical abandonment. Then when we tell people about Jesus based on that truth and the evidence of it that they clearly see in our lives, they will either run toward him or they'll turn around and run the other way. But I'm telling you, there won't be much in between. Author and pastor Erwin Lutzer once said, those who give much without sacrifice are reckoned as having given little. Let's finish the story for today, verses 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So the word troubled in verse 27 is the Greek word terasso. It means to be stirred up or to be unsettled. So just after explaining that his time to die had come back in verse 23. Jesus asks a rhetorical question. He says, is my soul stirred up, unsettled? And you know, of course, we know that it was actually stirred up and unsettled because of his prayer later in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he continues, what should I do? Should I ask the Father to spare me? That's exactly what he does later in his prayer to the Father. And yet at the same time, he understands that he must be obedient to the Father's will no matter the cost to him personally. So he answers his own question. He says, I know that it is for this very purpose to die that I'm here. And so I must be obedient to my calling, which he expresses when he says, Father, glorify your name, meaning go ahead and do what you must do because Jesus knew that in his death the Father would be glorified. In other words, no matter how difficult this gets, I'm going to be obedient to my Father's will. Jesus was an obedient king, which was totally unexpected, right? Who, who does a king submit to? Who does a king answer to? 
Who does a king obey? And yet Jesus denied his own will in obedience to the Father's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Luke twenty-two forty-two. Jesus denied his own will in order to satisfy the Father's will, which is the very picture of obedience. And of course, if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time at all, you already know how difficult that can be. It is so difficult sometimes to deny what we want in deference to what he wants, but Jesus could not be more clear on the matter. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Luke 6, 46. In other words, look, you can't call me Lord if you don't do what I tell you. If you refuse to obey my commands, then clearly I am not your Lord. Listen, confession without obedience is worthless. It means nothing. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, 21. He also said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Luke 8, 21. In Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Confession without obedience is worthless. And it's not that following the rules, by the way, is what saves us. Not at all. People of God tried that in the Old Testament and proved unequivocally that we will never be able to follow enough religious rules to be saved. We are saved by His grace through our faith alone, period. Obedience is simply one of the evidences, one of the proofs that we are genuinely following Christ. Not perfection, but a genuine desire and an ongoing effort even when we fail to obey the word of God and the calling of God on our lives, which is what Jesus, our King, demonstrated for us by his own actions, which was not only unexpected, it was downright shocking that this King, this Messiah, this Savior would come to the earth as a man in such humility, knowing he would be so misunderstood and yet sacrificed everything in obedience to the Father's will, which, by the way, troubled him deeply. Right after praying, Father, not my will, not what I want, but your will, what you want, be done. Luke says, in being in agony. Jesus was in agony over what the Father was asking him to do. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Just before he did the unthinkable, sacrificing his own life, his own perfect, unstained, sinless life for a world who wasn't even asking for it. Jesus defied everyone's expectations of him as he rode into Jerusalem that day, and he's been defying expectations ever since. And look, the world today doesn't need a less offensive or a more culturally acceptable version of Jesus. They just need Jesus. 
The same Jesus who offered people what they needed instead of what they wanted. The same Jesus who lived to satisfy the Father instead of those around him. The same Jesus who gave up his own life to save others. The same Jesus who denied his own will in obedience to his calling. He lived a life that no one expected and yet he is calling you and me to live that very same kind of life today. And look, People may not recognize you when you live that way, but they didn't recognize Jesus either. Because the purpose of his life had absolutely nothing to do with satisfying other people's expectations of him. And guess what? Neither does yours. Let's pray.